We tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. The worst strategic mistake that the Americans and the Australians and Western Europeans ever made was in 2001 to allow China into the World Trade Organization with special dispensations to say, we'll trade with you and we'll all follow a certain set of rules, but you don't have to. You don't have to have trade unions. You can keep your wages low. You can keep your exchange rates artificially low. So what happens? All the manufacturing moves there. And what we desperately need, not so much, I don't think, as low interest rates in this country, we somehow need in America and Australia to get wage growth. Wage growth is what drives prosperity in the, the middle, middle class. class. In yes, the middle exactly. class. Yeah, exactly. exactly. If you don't have wage growth, you end up without a middle class. And I think China has set out deliberately and really cynically to destroy the middle class in places like uh, the United States and Australia because that's the great strength of our society. It's the middle class, the people who work, the people who build houses, the people who buy toasters from Harvey Norman, the people who pay their taxes and who have traditionally had a voice through the... the people listening here. Yeah, well, but they haven't had a wage rise in 10 years. You know why? Because everyone's trying to compete with China. And low interest rates are one way of dealing with it. But as you say, I don't think it works. Once you get down to 1% to 1.5%, it doesn't. It doesn't. If, if you're not prepared to invest at 2%, you're not going to invest at 1%. That Australians all know, if you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it... Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will. Good morning and welcome. It's nice to be back. Nice to have your company this morning. All sorts of things this morning. We'll talk a little bit about uh, national service, which uh, I never did. And uh, many people said we should have some sort of national service. I always think it's good that People realise that when they live in a country that um, it'd be nice to help that country, not just by going to work and being a good citizen, but maybe putting time in. Like all the people who work for Rotary and Apex and Lions and many other peoples and carers do, but um, I'm sure a lot of people don't. They just um, they don't do that. I know in some big companies they say uh, everybody's got to do a couple of weeks a year in some sort of... Um, Community help thing, I think it'd be a great idea, great for the country, great for, and if you listen to some of the people I talked to during the week, I went up to Singleton where the um, uh, the army base is and um, there's a military museum there um, and uh, talked to some, well these were chalkies, these were teachers who uh, who went into the uh, army in, in a national service uh, thing in the 60s, most of them, in the 60s and they worked in the Pacific Islands, um, many in New Guinea and and uh, as part of the national service, which is interesting, some were called up, like uh, during the Vietnam time, and they went to, um, they went, uh, didn't go to Vietnam. They went to Papua New Guinea and taught the soldiers over there, you know, English and chemistry and all sorts of things. So interesting. Um, also, uh, I'll tell you, I went to, um, I went to see Barry Humphreys in his uh, guise as uh, Edna Everidge while I was on holes. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not sure. I've seen him a couple of times over the years, as most people have. I've seen. I saw him last about. Look, I reckon it'd be five, six years ago, and before that, I don't know about ten years ago. He's been around a while. He's Edna. 
um, and Barry have been around uh, a good while. Interesting, interesting. That's all I say. But look, we'll talk to you. Our number's thirteen hundred seven hundred triple two. I've got a lot of um, bits and pieces here, like this from Facebook. Hi, Maco. It's the travelling sisters Suzanne and Tracy from Romsey and Rosebud. They were the ones who were yodelling on the ferry across the Mersey. Remember? They was. They said we're we're here. We're waiting to get the ferry across to Liverpool, and we're yodelling. <laughs> Anyway, Tracy and um, Suzanne and Tracy say, our holiday of a lifetime is coming to an end. We're sitting at LA Airport getting ready to board for home. We covered England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, France and the USA and wow, what a time we had. We look forward to listening to your show each Sunday. It appeased our homesickness we had. One of the highlights was the Atlantic crossing on the Queen Mary 2. Loved meeting new people and experiencing what we did. But what it has shown us is how great our own country is. How nice it is to get away, but how amazing it is to come home. Little possums. We'll have to catch up to Trace and Susie, um, girl, sometime. Hi, Macca, says Margot. This is on Facebook too. Just farewelled my truck driver partner this morning. This is from before my hole. It wasn't much of a hole. I ended up cleaning up or trying to, putting things in different piles, shifting them around. Hardly threw anything out. Except I went to the tip... And the tip, when I went to the tip, was it 64 bucks? 64 bucks, whether you were taking in an ice cream container or, and then they, if it was more than that, they'll charge you. 64 bucks. Who said there's money and mook? Was that Gracie Fields said there's money and mook? My God. And, so, and anyway, um, Macca, just farewell, my truck driving partner, says Margot. Uh, on his way to cart flour from Manildra to Brisbane. His truck fridge is packed with homemade meals, roast beef and pickle sandwiches, sayos and peanut butter, homemade cake and plenty of fruit. Remember I was talking to a truck driver and I said, you know, how it is stopping in truck stops all the time. Nothing wrong with truck stops, but anyway, because I I spoke to a truck driver once and he said, I'm parked by the side of the road and I've got my own gear and I cook and make me a cup of tea and all that sort of stuff anyway. But that's pretty hard to do when you've got a, a you know, a regime, a regime to keep. Homemade cake and plenty of fruit. Meals at truck stops are few and far between for him. A little bit of effort before each trip means healthier and more budget-friendly meals that can be eaten whenever and wherever. The pleasure of a cup from a thermos and a piece of homemade cake can never be underestimated, says Margot from Blaney in New South Wales. Margot, Margot Drake, that's... So good, so good. A cup of tea and a bit of homemade cake. Uh, Tony says, if the dairy industry would only nominate a brand to buy, we'd buy it. Why can't get, they get the idea of consumer action? <coughs> it's pretty hard, to, Tony, it's a good idea, but it's pretty hard to fight against huge conglomerates like Woolworths and Coles and Aldi. They're big-time they're big players. But anyway, I take your point. Uh, David Anderson says, I was listening... Uh, um, last Sunday, this is Sunday before, as to how investors have bought water rights and are now selling water at a high price to farmers who are going through difficult times. To me, water, says David, is a basic necessity that should be available to all people at a reasonable cost. The idea that water is a commodity that can be bought and sold for an exorbitant price in a private market, call it neoliberalism, is a failed ideology. I'm sure even Menzies and McEwen would not have allowed such a situation to arrive. This also applies to other basics such as electricity, gas... And Telstra, NBM, communications. Need I mention the Darling River, says David. Thanks for the show. And uh, this is from Rowan, Rowan Goyne. Remember, 
well, you probably didn't remember, but um, he was the bloke that alerted us to John Colvin, the bloke who made the the um, special glasses for the uh, first moon astronauts. Anyway, Rowan says, following my discussion with you back in February about John Colvin's contribution to the Apollo space program, I subsequently heard your interview with John's son, Alan, on the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. We were in Melbourne. That was lovely. He was great. That was a great program. I've just published a new ebook, Apollo Stories, Space History and Law During the Pioneering Years of the Apollo Space Program through Draft 2 Digital in the US, which includes John Colvin's story, amongst others, says Rowan Goyne. Good on you, Rowan. Uh, all that and more this morning. Our number is uh, 1300 700 222. I'd love to talk to you wherever you are. G'day, this is Macca. Yeah, g'day, Macca. It's Ian here. How are you, mate? Good, thanks, Ian. Yeah, Mike, I just I just rang up. I'm just driving down to the Bowen Basin, uh, the coal mines. I work down there as a contractor. And um, I just see a vast uh, scenery on my drive down there. Yep, tell me. I, um, so I leave uh, Cairns where it's uh, lush and tropical. And uh, I'm currently halfway between Mareeba and Atherton. And, and things are pretty green up that way. And I head down through uh, Greenvale. And I get to around Charters Towers and the Billiando Crossing, and, it, and it's just so dry. And I drive the road regularly, and it just doesn't seem to get better. You know, it'll break your heart. Exactly. And and yet there was a lot of rain. I mean, I, I spoke to somebody before I went on holes a couple of weeks ago, and he sent me a picture. It, was, it might have been John out Winton Way, and he sent me a picture, and he said, well, this is the land we had a lot of rain. He said, but now, look, it's all burnt off, and um, there's still water in pools from the... Flooding rains, but um, yeah, it's all burnt off um, again. So I don't know. Yeah, it just it just doesn't um, seem to get any better for these um, farmers, you know. And um, um, there's lots of talk in the in the media at the moment, and I just and I just don't know what the um, a- answer is. And uh, and I guess we're everyone is looking to our um, leaders and politicians to uh, come up with something for these farmers because it's just um, this current situation. It's just untenable for so many people, I guess. I know, I know. <laughs> the only solution, Ian, really is is rain, isn't it? I mean, that's the that's the problem. Um, and this is compounded from uh, a couple of years. You know, it, it's it's it seems like a one long drought with a few little breaks in between, as we've talked about before. Um, that's that's I think the problem. Um, and um, and then people in North Queensland, of course. Um, uh, where they had those terrible floods, but even there, it's up dry. They could do with a drop of rain again. You know, I was talking to the mayor of, uh, was it the Curry, um, a couple of oh, a month or two ago, and he said, "Yes, you know, we had all that rain, but we could do with another drop now." You know, I mean, that's the that the whole thing is. I mean, there's only so much you can do, I reckon, Ian. Um, and and I think um, you know, government and politicians are, are pretty well mindful of the fact that they've got to help, and they have helped. There's lots of there's lots of programs in place and i know in a lot of country towns like i had a, a missive from uh, a chemist in a in a country town um in the hunter valley of new south wales and i also talked to a bloke in up in uh, huendon who said they had the uh, the equivalent of a drought card where where the uh, people had an fpos card but you could only spend the money in the town and that's been i know been very successful um, in um up in huendon and up in the Hunter Valley in various towns, that's that's one way you can help because before that, nothing happened. Everybody just shot through. There was no money, but if they spend the money in the town, and the town's got to keep alive too, as well as the, as well as the people out in the uh, on the land as well too. Uh, Ian, yeah. So so that um, 
so it just makes me think, you know, so up, up in Cairns, we, we don't have a, um, a water problem. We have a water storage problem. So, so we have heaps of rain, and, they are, and our dams uh, in Cairns in the wet season will overflow. I mean, um, Tinaroo Dam on the um, Atherton Tablelands, that was uh, uh, full last year. And, and it just makes you wonder, with um, technology, how, how come we, we can't, as a country, um, harness this water in the north and, and get it down uh, to the areas that are, that are needed? And as I said, I work in a bar and basin where there's these coal mines, and I mean, these companies, uh, most people don't understand. They just move massive amounts of earth, and and I think if, if they can do these things, how, how come the government um, can't pull their finger out and, and do similar things in regards to infrastructure? Well, I think things are changing. As I, I spoke to Greg uh, Greg Campbell, who's the mayor of... Uh Cloncurry, and, and they want to try and put in a dam there and they want to take some of the water. Only, he said, about 3% because when it rains up north, of course, as you know, heaps of rain, they want to take about 3% and, and get some sort of storage uh, thing. But it's going to cost a lot of money because there's you know, all sorts of red tape in front of that. But, and they want to not just take the water, but they want to grow and have some horticulture. And he said that'll be great for the town. And there's a lot of towns that want to do that, you know, just uh, not get all the water that's in the river, just a, a small percentage of it which will not only be drinking water, but they can use it to grow some stuff and make some money and, and you know, what goes around comes around sort of thing. Yeah, so, so um, you know, I, and I don't know how all these things work, but you just hear of um, that there's a North Queensland future fund um, available from the federal government and, um, and you would just think that there will be funding there for these types of uh, activities and uh, this, this is just something that really needs to be um, fast-tracked, uh, Macca. Yeah, well, I think you're right. I think you're right, Ian. And I think, look, I'm I'm not sure, but I I, I suspect that everybody realises um, that when you get uh, situations like this where you've had continuing drought and a lot of hardship, that um, uh, everybody pulls together. I know they have. You know, the CWA in New South Wales has distributed about 11 million, and uh, in Victoria about uh, uh, one million helping people. But um, yeah, water's the water's the thing, and we need to have some sort of storage. Not huge dams, but uh, if, if if every town or you know could have uh, as Greg Campbell's plan for around their place, their city, um, around uh, the Curry, had their own little um, yeah water storage area. Well, that'd solve a lot of problems, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And um, look, as I said, I don't know what the answer is, but um, but but as a country and nation. We um we we really need our um our politicians, and not only that, we we have incredible um, business-minded people in Australia with um just untapped knowledge. Yeah. And I and I think we we really need to um, get these people all together and have a bit of a think tank and um and come up with a solution. You know, that solution is obviously not going to happen straight away, but if we had some sort of timetable, five to ten years, I think it's very achievable, and that would give people some sort of hope. I think you're right, Ian. Um, and how's the, what? Who do you work for? Uh, look, I, I work for a small co- company in the um, in the Bowen Basin, and I um, I contract my um, services out, and I work at a variety of mines, um, which I'd like to briefly touch on. But before then, I just like I heard your other call in before. I think it was talking about China and their influence. Yeah. And um, I can remember about um, thirty years ago, just before my grandfather passed away. And I was living in Wollongong and working at the steelworks, uh-huh. and um, and he also had worked there for most of his working life. 
And just before we don't let you, you said something to me, um, beware of the sleeping dragon. dragon. Uh-huh. And, and I just think that's really coming to uh, fruition now. Um, on another point, I heard you say that you went and saw uh, Barry Humphreys. Yeah. Um, well, I went and I, saw um, Edna. Oh, Edna. Edna. <laughs> well, well uh, Ed, Edna, Edna, I guess, doesn't really float my boat. But um, I've got to say I'm a huge fan of Sir Les Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one, one would one would think a quintessential Australian. <laughs> My mum wasn't a big fan of him at all. That's why she wouldn't go and see Barry Hubbard. She couldn't. She didn't like the language, mate. She didn't like the yeah. language at all. Well, it can be a bit blue at times. Oh, a bit blue. God help me. <laughs> anyway, and uh, yeah, just a couple more things. And, Quick. and you, you had about the um, the truck driver. I mean, while well, I'm driving, my wife makes a bit of food for me. But um, I'll stop off and have a trucky Scott. Have you heard of that, Maker? Um, I think I have, but tell me again. It's a um, wheat mixed with jam and some spray-packed cream on top. <laughs> and uh, now, just my last one before I go. So uh, in regards to these coal mines, you, he- you hear about a Dharmi all the time. Yeah. And um, what a lot of people don't realise is, I mean, that's just one mine. There's, there's numerous mines at the Bowen Basin at the moment that are um, starting construction or will start construction in the near future. And and these majority of these mines in the Bowen Basin, they're not thermal coal. It's coking coal, and coking coal is made to use steel. And and uh, steel is a part of our everyday life, whether whether we like it or, or dislike it. We like it. I like it. I think yeah. it's great. Go on. And, um, and one thing that just caught me, I, I saw a, um, a protester on a clip just recently, and he was being interviewed by a, um, a radio guy in Melbourne. And, uh, I mean, everyone's got their point of view. But I looked at this guy, and uh, he had a beanie on, and I'm guessing it's a wool beanie. Now, um, <laughs> I might be drawing a long bow here, but um, to get wool, as everyone knows, you've got to shear sheep, and, and the shearing equipment is made out of steel. The fencing is made out of steel. The trucks that cut the wool are made out of steel. And, I mean, um, these these uh, mines with the coking coal, um a lot of it is the backbone of Australia, and like it or dislike it, it provides a lot of jobs for a lot of people. My and microphone's made out of steel, mate. That I'm talking to right now. It's made out of steel. I can feel it. Yeah, and and um, where where I believe there should be strict environmental um, controls to protect things like the artesian basin, um, I, I I just think it's a real necessity. Good on you, Ian. It's great to talk no to you, mate. Enjoy your um, Truckies uh, pancake. What's it called? Truckies sandwich. Truckies gone. Truckies gone, <laughs> Truckies. Mate. Good on you, Ian. Okay, see you, mate. See you, mate. Bye. I met these blokes. Uh, they were ex-Chalkies. They were at uh, uh, the reunion of Chalkies from, who'd done national service. Um, they ended up working in New Guinea. Um, come and meet John Morris and Kev Horton. I'm talking to John Morris from Barrel and... Kev Horton from Curlin Beach. John, tell me your story. Yes, well, I uh, did two years teachers' college at Wagga. Then I was sent to a one-teacher school called Monia Gap, and I spent a year there wondering how I was going to get out of it. But then the uh, letter arrived, and uh, I ended up two years in the army, and eventually going to New Guinea in the Education Corps. Uh, tell people where's Monia Gap. 
Mona Gap's halfway between Hillston and Rankin Springs, but uh, close to Griffith. So that must have been a culture shock. Yes, well, I lived on a farm. The farmers took it in turns to host the teacher. Yes, it was. A wonderful experience. I, didn't, I suppose when I reflect on it now, I didn't realise how good it was, but it was certainly made us as teachers. Everybody says that when they're sent away, regardless of whether they go to PNG or out to Monia's Gap. Did you think that at the time? Do you think, oh, for God's sake, I'm being sent up here? Well, I think so to a certain degree. Um, you know, I wanted to continue in my teaching career. I didn't know what I was going to do when I went back. I fortunately went back into it. But, yeah, it was just a, a culture shock. But, again, um, it, when I did the leaving certificate, we studied uh, Papua New Guinea, so it was really good. Really? Yes, for honours. I did second class honours and got it. And in what, lot, geography or something? Yeah, in geography. Right. And um, it was all about Southeast Asia and New Guinea was included. Kevin, what's your story? Pretty similar. Macker, I was my first year teaching at 19 in Kingaroy. I had uh, Joe Bajelke Peterson's daughter in my class. To go from uh, a grade four with 38 kids with uh, Joe's daughter in my class to um, Papua New Guinea that teaching could have been native pass- soldiers. That could have been a passport to success, mate, for you. <laughs> he didn't pull any strings for me. <laughs> but no, it, it was amazing having a, your class marched in, sat to attention, and they were keen to learn. Uh, the soldiers had to get a certain level of education to get uh, promotion, so they were all keen to learn. They would sit at attention until you said at ease, the best teaching conditions you could ever come across. And the soldiers were good soldiers. We were lucky, probably my highlight there was a month on patrol in New Ireland, myself and 15 native soldiers on a wave the flag recruiting drive. Boys own world. It was, uh, it was magic. And as I said to John, is this like looking back on it, you, you think what a wonderful time. When you were initially sent there, were you a bit trepidatious or you thought, gee, here's, what am I um, going to do with this? Yeah, I, w- I was from the country then, from, uh, from a farm. And strangely enough, I was looking forward to being called up, thought I was doing the right thing for Queen and Country and so on, because this is Vietnam days, and I would have gone to Vietnam happily. Having just returned from Vietnam, I feel almost uh, embarrassed to have th- had those feelings. Was it? Um, just that the Vietnamese people in when you were there are so forgiving, caring, great to uh, get on with and they're just families like everybody else here is. And so that was a strange feeling to go from 50 years ago when I could have been there and luckily, just luck of the draw really, ending up in Papua New Guinea as a, a teacher because at the end of 10 weeks rookie here at Singleton and then 10 weeks infantry training, towards the end of the 10 weeks we had an interview and I was chosen of the guys who were teachers to... Uh, of one of the 300 or so teachers who went to Papua New Guinea that very few people know about, but a lot more people will know about now that this uh, exhibit's opened in the museum here. After your, your both um, national service experience, what did you do? You became, you became a teacher, John, didn't you? Yes, I continued teaching for the next 38 years. And what about you, Kev? I did much the same. Mm. Yep, continued for, uh, I think, uh, 43 years all up. And, um, Did you try and get the kids to march in and sit us? <laughs> I would love to have tried to get to have that. It, that used to happen in the early days, but yeah, uh, it was a great grounding and I think a great appreciation for what we have here in Australia. And I was lucky enough to be one of the ones, got married at 20, so I ended up having my wife up with me in Papua New Guinea. After a period of time living in a one-bedroom flat in Barocco, we, uh, we got a married quarter out in the base with a houseboy. So here you were, a 21 and 20-year-old. Living the life a, of Riley. Just, <laughs> you just could not believe. Um, sure, it, was, it wasn't wonderful in some ways, but when you compare what it could have been, it was like winning the casket, that's for sure, <laughs> being chosen to go to PNG. And also, of course, different in my situation because my wife was with me. A lot of the guys had fiancés back home and, of course, they didn't really want to be there. And some of the single guys had come into it 
not really with uh, very positive ideas about national service. No, it was um, interesting coming back and uh, as I said I think we learned from the experience exactly what Kevin's talked about and um, a lot of even when you went back teaching a lot of people didn't know what this was all about. How come you were in the army and you got to teach in New Guinea? So they were just unsure about it. So we did a bit of education there explaining to them what uh, what it was all about. But as Kevin said this museum's just a wonderful exhibit of uh, reflects what we did during that time. Lovely to meet you both and thanks for sharing your wonderful experiences. Thank you. G'day, this is Macca. Hi Macca, it's Louise from Ocean Beach Surf Life Saving Club on the New South Wales Central Coast and I've just returned from the World Conference on Drowning Prevention in Durban, South Africa. Uh, Give us a report, Louise. Uh, It was 64 uh, 64, um, nations, 520 delegates. Um, It was an amazing experience just talking with people about their drowning issues in each country um, and sharing our experiences here in Australia. And we've got a few, haven't we? Durban, South Africa, they'd have some issues. They've got a lot of beaches, haven't they? Yeah, but it's not only that, Maka, it might be if they had children drowning in pit toilets and they had children that drown when their parents are collecting water. It's just, it's different for each nation. Yeah. But just to, to touch base with um, the problems that other nations have and just to share experiences was just incredible. Yeah, I'll bet, Louise, what's your, your um, uh, lifesaver or lifeguard? Yeah, I'm a lifesaver who, um, who wrote a little children's storybook and, and I was over there to present about um, using children's literature as an effective drowning prevention mm. intervention. So from the beach to the world stage, it was a, a, an amazing, um, amazing time and a big step up, but I loved it. And I suppose uh, more people in the world, more people drowning. It's the third biggest um, accidental death um, in the world. The, the statistics are just overwhelming. Mm. And, and when was this? You just re- just returned, have you, Louise? Yeah. So yeah. So the conference was from the seventh to the tenth, and I had a um, couple of extra days in the game park, um, and then just returned from it. So still jet lagged, but I'm um, still reeling from just all the information that I heard. A lesson you could tell all the people who are listening this morning about drowning and water and stuff safety. Okay, I'm a surf lifesaver. Swim between the flags um, and supervise your children. Um, and, and people will often overestimate their own swimming ability and the ability of their kids. Put them in the surf. It's a completely different environment. So please, um, you know, just stick with the lifesavers. We can watch you if we can see you. Good on you, Louise. Nice to talk. We'll catch up sometime. Thanks, Maka. Bye. Good on you. Bye. Mixing Canamel. Good morning, Mick. G'day, Mac. How are you going? Yeah, not bad, mate. What's happening? Uh, not much change in the weather, mate. Still the same as what it was. Uh, <laughs> horrible. Horrible, yeah, horrible, 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 horrible. How are you getting by, Mick? you got a place in Canamble, haven't you? Yeah, we're... Uh, we, what was it, Mac? How are you getting by? What are you doing? What, how are you feeding your stock and stuff? Or what are you... Uh, uh, yeah, we're just... Uh, well, we, I'm uh, feeding a bit of hay and um, just a little bit on a bit of fail crop. Or it's just about finished now, but... Um, we had a shocking day yesterday with the wind and terrible dust storm yesterday afternoon again. I wonder if they got that at Turawina because Turawina had their show yesterday and you feel for, you know, it's bad enough having no water, but when the when the wind comes and the dust comes, that's a pain in the neck, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was as bad on sunset as it was all day, like which is normally, it's a bit out of character. Normally, you know, it's in the heat of the day that's the worst, but last night it was terrible on sunset. Uh-huh. So, but no, I was just going to, um, on uh, we had a charity or had a, Big race day here on um, sun, last Sunday. Yeah, and uh, we oh, had Canamble, the Canamble Cup was it? Or the... Yeah, Canamble Gold Cup. Oh, Gold Cup. Right. Um, we had about two hundred eighty-five thousand dollars in prize money, which bought some tremendous horses. Actually, Gay Waterhouse trained the Cup winner. Oh wow! Which is a first for Canamble, so she didn't come out, but the horse won convincingly. But 
On the um, Saturday night, we tried a little bit of a different theme, and we had a had a Calcutta in conjunction with a uh, charity auction for our local cancer foundation. And in that, we raised a total of $44,060 for the local community. <laughs> Gee, that's good, isn't it? Tremendous in these times. Yes. And um, we put together a lot. Uh, the club organised a group of uh, growers that pressed a little bit of hay in the shire from fail crops. And 13 growers put uh, six bales in and produced a road train of hay, which we sold in two separate trailers. And one a bloke, a fellow by the name of Greg Young Husband, he did, did doing quite a bit of hay around the area, and he did the, was doing the freight to deliver it um, to the su- successful bidders yeah. who were um, a couple well, of local farmers, which was tremendous. That's a great story, and it's great to get together in community times in times like this. Uh, Mick, tell me this, how 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 people getting by? I mean, you said you failed crop, and I know my cousin Rosie had a failed crop too, so, I mean, in some ways it's, it was good to have a failed crop, if you know what I mean, but... um. That's just about run out. How are people going to survive, Vic, if it doesn't rain? Well, I don't. I, I didn't make it yesterday. I was tied up on uh, Friday, but there was a uh, sort of an information meeting on how things are going to work because the town's struggling enormously at the moment. Like, and I think it's only going to get worse for the next few months because there's no income at all until it does rain, and it still hasn't rained. So, but you know, I've got a few mates that I talk to, you know, sort of on a quarter note, and they're struggling big time. And I don't know what's going to end up happening. I think. The economy in our town is is becoming drastic, like uh, which as many others are. We're not yeah. the only ones, but no. it's I've never seen anything like it. You know, or there's a lot of people older than me, but the economy here is. If you had a small shop, or you know, even the the coast, they'll struggle for people that normally go on holidays. Yeah, uh, you know, and it's an ongoing, it's a domino effect, Macca, as you're going to be well aware. Yeah, it affects everybody. You know, I mean, you know. Uh, it's the same when they talk about a drought in the river, a drought in the sea. When people, when you can't catch a fish, well, it's the same. You know, if if the if the bush hasn't got any money, you'll find the city struggles too. You know, and um, but you know what we want to do is try and work out a way. But look, I, I can't see any way around it except to you know just bunker down, try and help people who can't help themselves, and and hope for good times. And when the rain does come. You know, have some meetings and 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 formulate ways that we can get around drought because drought's always a part. This one's been a bit of a bugger because it's been compounded with a few, you know, a few little breaks in between. But it seems to have been going on forever, Mick, doesn't it? Yeah, it's it's not ending. And and, and on that weekend, we had some uh, gentlemen from Sydney come up. Uh, Scott Kennedy from Racing New South Wales and um, oh, Butch Collis. He's got Dad and Dave Turf in Sydney. Mm. Um, Jason, he's got a truck business, and Lindsay Murphy did 42 years as a curator in Sydney on the racetracks, and they came up for the weekend and spent the weekend with us. And you know, they could—they were interested in how the economy's going. On, you know, coming this far out, they don't normally do it. No, they were couldn't believe how bad things really are. The further you go, yeah. Um, Mick, uh, keep up the good work, mate, and keep uh, rounding up people and keeping people together. That's all you can do, Mick. I'm I really. I, if it doesn't, if it doesn't rain, you've got to try and work out ways. I'm going to go out to to Dubbo because a lady asked me to come out to Dubbo the other day because they're doing it tough there, all around your area. So um, yeah, I'll try and come out to Canamble too. We'll work something on, out on the 15th of uh, March next year, Macker. I've got a chair ready for you, or the committee has for you to do your broadcast <laughs> of our country championships. Right. That's the 15th of March. Now, don't forget that. You better, no. better put that in your... Get a oh. leader put in your diary. All right. Yeah, well, I might come out before then anyway. We'll, we should put on a dance or something in Canamble down at the golf club or at the um, at the Arsenal. 
Yeah, no, that'd be terrific. I'll tell you, um, you mentioned Rosemary and uh, Dixon earlier. They donated six bars of hay. They were one of the contributors too, so which was good. Well, it's, uh, yeah, in times of tough, people dig deep, Mick. Um, keep up the good work, mate. Good on you, mate. Take care. See you, bye. Oh, hi, Macca. It's Kay from, from Canberra. Hi, Formerly of, of Canamble. Um, this would have to be a quick call. I've been trying to get on you this morning. Mm. Um, it's about the 30-page application that the farmers have to fill in to get help from the government. And they're finding that they can't cope with it and they're tired and... and um, the only ones who are being able to fill it in are those who can uh, um, um, go to an accountant mm-hmm. and most of the farmers can't afford an accountant. So my appeal today is to the accountants of the West and, the, and all the drought areas that they offer to help fill in these 30-page forms for the farmers for, right. for pro bono. Yeah, I wonder how they get in touch with them. They get in touch with Well, I'd say, you know, go to the... Well, if the shot, if the local um, radio station or in go into the town, lo- the local council, yeah, and go to the local council and say, would they ask the council accountants if they would help the farmers to fill this in? All right, good on you, Kate. You know, because it's just I was talking to a friend in Canamble mm. last week, and he said it's just really beyond most of them, and the only ones that are filling it in are those who can afford to pay an accountant. Good point. Thanks for your call, Kay. That's all right. Good Bye. I went up to Singleton the other day to meet some Chalkies who were part of the intake. They became teachers. They were called up, and so they went to New Guinea to teach. Daryl Dimmick wrote a book about it. Come and meet, come and meet Daryl. It's Daryl Dimmick, author of a book called... The Chalkies. Was there a subtitle? The subtitle is how three, 300 national servicemen served their country in Papua New Guinea instead of being sent to Vietnam. Were you one of them? Yes, yes, I was one of them. Mm. 1969-70. Well, tell me your story. My story is I was a, a Queensland teacher, a high school teacher, and called up for national service in the first intake 1965, but managed to avoid going into the army by deferring by doing studies until 1969. Then went into... Uh, went to Singleton for basic training, applied for the Royal Australian Army Educational Corps and so was selected in that as a teacher. Finally was sent to Papua New Guinea as part of my two-year service. I spent more than 12 months in Papua New Guinea teaching with the Pacific Island Regiment. And what was that like? It was amazing. Uh, I mean, I, I was 23 years old at the time, married, just married before I went into national service. It was just such a, a cultural difference, suddenly being transported from Queensland um, in, into Papua New Guinea, into the army for a start, that, that something I never asked or, or expected. And, and so we had to de- deal, first of all, with the army. And then, of course, we were thrown into the situation and we were teaching Papua New Guinean troops English social studies, math, science, um, trying to bring their educational levels up to the sort of standard that the, the army up there required. And as others have said, a wonderful experience when you look back on it. Amazing, an amazing experience. At, at the time, I don't think we appreciated it. Mm. And the other thing that I didn't appreciate at the time either was how th- th- this was actually part of a scheme that the army had had developed. Uh, and we, we just went there because we were, we were ordered to, basically, and we were teachers and we were very grateful for the opportunity to be able to teach. What we didn't realise was that the army had decided that the way to uh, 
improve the standards of, of, of the troops in Papua New Guinea was to in fact to bring these national servicemen. They'd suddenly discovered they had all these teachers in doing national service. They needed to upgrade the, the standards of, of the PIR troops. And so between 1966 and 1972, in fact, they, they sent 300 of us up there, you know, across that period, about 40 a year. And these were kids from all over Australia, weren't they? Correct. That's right. All, from all over Australia. Every state was, was represented there. I mean, these were people who were in their early 20s um, suddenly catapulted into, into this situation, not only catapulted into the army, but catapulted into Papua New Guinea. I mean, some people, of course, were, were serving in Vietnam in quite different circumstances, but, but we were really grateful after the event, perhaps more, more even so than at the time, uh, as the contribution we were actually made to the, the development of Papua New Guinea itself. So you came back after your stint. How long were you there? I was there just over 12 months. Late 1969, I went up there and came back just at the end of 1970. All that life experience you had, you thought, well, there's a book in this. Well, that's right. And a lot of people don't know about it, of course. I mean, it's, it's new to me and new to a lot of people. Sure, yeah. Well, it, it's called the Chalkies, but in a way it was a natural progression of my... I became an academic, so researching and writing was what I did. And so when the opportunity came up, when we started to get together, this group started to reform only like 10 or 15 years ago. The Chalkies themselves hadn't really formed, and it was only some a small number of people said, hey, why don't we get a few of us together? We've, you know, like there's a lot of, lot of us across Australia. Shared experience. And shared experience, that's right. And once people started telling their stories, of course, and once I discovered, like it seemed naive now, but, but it was 50 years later that I actually saw that there were 300 of us actually went up there. It wasn't just those 40 that went up the year I was there. And, you know, and I knew there were people on either side, but I hadn't realised it was such a, an organised scheme and that the army actually did have a plan for this. What's your take on the fact that you could have gone to Vietnam? Some people did want to go to Vietnam. I never wanted to go to Vietnam. I, I was married at the time for a start. I, I think the thing that what we're grateful for is we're, we were probably one of the few professions that actually used the training that we had when we went into the Army for what we were trained for. <laughs> many, many others ended up in all sorts of different corps that they'd never had any training for. Good on you, Daryl. Great to meet you. The book again is called... Called The Chalkies. Lovely to meet you. Good on you. OK, thanks very much, Maka. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.